You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome back to episode 49 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast. You can find us broadcasting on Middle Earth Network Radio, as well as on the Star Wars Report website. Our episodes are even available right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get our show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herleman, and with me like Han Solo being put into every book, comic, or game happening to be set in the classic era, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Nathan, how's it going? <laughs> I am, I am Will, although I, I, is that a commentary on me being on all these different podcasts and stuff like that? I'm just saying. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I, it's, yeah exactly. Uh, good to be back. Been putting out a lot of new uh, From the Star Wars Library videos for those who haven't had a chance to check those out. YouTube.com, uh, username Chrono Radio. We're tying it into the show here. Mark, I saw that you had actually put out uh, the first round of a new little quick little video series, too, that's going to be growing. What's the deal with that? I I did. Well, that was my test video and I wasn't going to release it. I was just uh, doing it to fool around, but I was like, oh, you know, I'll just toss it out there and see if anyone even thinks it's uh, anything. I I went with one of my blog titles. It was either Illogical Rants or Rogue Transmissions, although it was kind of like an illogical rant when I listened to it. But yeah, I I, uh, definitely we've been uh, switching over to visual at the Star Wars report all the way around. Uh, And so, you know, as you see with Nathan's videos and stuff, he's been doing that. So I kind of want to have some kind of video content. Um, Not exactly sure what I'm going to do with it. I may just babble about random things or kind of do something more like what uh, Jason Hunt of the Wampus Lair is doing with his little video editions. Uh, But it's definitely something we're kind of trying to do, branch out and get more visual things going on and kind of showcase the collections we have and so uh you know that's going to be uh my little studio window for you guys to uh see what's going on in here well yours certainly looks cooler mine i still haven't figured out the lighting thing the li- i've i think i've got it figured out and the very next time i do it i apparently didn't have it figured out but but yeah maybe at some point we'll eventually get to a point where it's not gonna be the same thing sitting behind me on the shelves yeah, mine's definitely going to be changing because, like I say, right now with the studio flooding, I've got that bookshelf that's behind me. is It's literally pressed up against my seat. It's like five feet away from the wall and the other one's moved. And I, I mean, I'm thinking I'm going to put them back in the same spot and just raise them up off the ground. I mean, the books are safe and the water only comes in at the floor level and it's never really deep. It's just like a trickle. It becomes a puddle. But the wood of my bookshelf is sitting in it and I don't really like that. So I'm thinking I might buy some little concrete slabs that are only about two inches big and raise it up. The, the downside is that I won't be able to put my hard covers on the shelf behind it. I'm going to have to put them on one of the other bookshelves. But the upside is I have got shelving 360 degrees where I'm at right now, which is a first. I haven't had that since about three houses ago. So really cool to have that and to be able to actually have most of my stuff out on display. Still bummer that I've got so much stuff that I can't have it all out, but I guess that's the nature of the beast when you're as OCD as Star Wars collecting as you and I. (laughs) Yeah, and speaking about uh, uh, having it all out and showing, um, there's a couple characters I guess we could call Tits McGee. Uh, in this particular storyline <laughs> that we're going to be looking at, uh, and uh, a buck-naked Imperial agent, which we're going to be getting into here. So, uh, uh, yeah, this time around. I, I just, uh, I just, I have to say, it just makes me think of Chesty Galore. <laughs> there you go. They got, it's, you would think that there would be names like the ones from the Bond 
films, but uh, like uh, what was her name? Uh, Natasha on the top, on the top, <laughs> on the top. Uh, you would uh, expect something like that from this. Um, but anyway, folks, our topic for this time around. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, you know we ask the tough questions, questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and of course, so do we. This episode, we are going to discuss Iron Eclipse, the first story arc in John Ostrander's newest Star Wars series, Agent of the Empire. Consider this your spoiler warning, because here we go. Our last episode, we were talking about how the character Theron Shan kind of felt like Ethan Hunt from Mission Impossible. This one was actually described when they first promoted the character as being a James Bond slash Jason Bourne type character. And I want to say they nailed it. I mean, the, the, the feeling definitely comes across in the first arc, Iron Eclipse. I mean, first issue alone, you get that feeling. I mean, the character jumps right in on a mission and he's using technology and stuff to take out, nay, kill his opponents. Uh, you know, th there's a lot of cool stuff going on in this, this arc. I, I think the thing though, that I like the most is the art style that to me can make or break a comic. And the art that's used in this is the type of lines, the type of coloring and stuff that really appeals to me. There's some really cool little Easter eggs. I think on the second page, uh, you know, Johan cross is talking to one of the Imperial uh, moths or, or whatever. I think he's a Colonel and there's weapons on the background and you see a Klingon bathlet, a batleth. You see a, uh, a predator type of spiral weapon. You see a Klingon uh, ceremonial dagger, a lot of things like that, that that I just I love when comics take and do these little Easter egg, these homages, the tip of the hats, if you will. Uh, I believe Firefly, uh, the Firefly vessel, it found its way in in the same way. You find that out in my video. In fact, I, I mentioned that. But there's a lot of really cool stuff like that, and, and you get to see his his Inga forty four or uh, uh, I N G A forty four. He calls her Inga, that the little droid he has and her little abilities. You know, a lot of cool technology at play here, and I think that the reason why it's so cool is the setting because where this is set, they're able to tie in the prequel trilogy with the original trilogy and have it set in a present that, that, that works for me. You know, I, I talk about how with me and, and Luke Skywalker, the present story for me is the current one out. So like when shadows of Mendor happened, I didn't really enjoy it because it didn't feel present for me. This one, while the story isn't set in that most present location, the present for, for cross very much felt present to me. I was very much felt like I was in that moment and I enjoyed this arc a lot. Uh, the action was definitely well paced. What about you, Nathan? What was your initial thoughts? Person that screamed out to me was, you know, I, I was questioning how much are they going to play off of James Bond here? I think even in the structure of the story to a degree, they play into it. I know that the if you're looking at a TV series, I know that what happens prior to the credits to get your attention is often referred to as the cold open. I'm not sure if that's what you call it in a film. But the Bond films were sort of known for that type of thing. You have your, your quick opening thing where he's in the middle of some other mission and whatnot, and then something happens, and it's the ba-ba-ba-ba, right? They do the whole, they, they iris into it, and then they iris back out, and you've got him walking out. He turns to the camera, he shoots and everything. You can almost expect that to happen here once you get 
just a few pages into it. He gets done with his initial mission uh, with Milosh Merlin, uh, the station commandant at an Imperial Research Center on Wayland, and then uh, it, it moves him back to the base where he's reporting back to Armand Isard, which is kind of cool to see him. Um, but I mean, you almost could feel like it's, it's that type of story break, that if this was in an animated form or something, that's what we'd be seeing. But then you keep going, and you know, Armand Isard in, in a lot of ways is sort of like his version of an M. You've got yeah. Uh, he calls he calls him the old man. I, I love when when the first scene gets over and uh, Inga goes. Uh, Opponents are non-functional, Master Johan. Yes, the old man won't be happy about all this. I'm afraid. <laughs> See, I always call him Jahan. I don't know if that's that's it's right or not. Um, but you get to a point where he uh, fairly early on winds up essentially talking to. They they kind of had to take Q as the the gadget guy and split him up into different pieces, it seems like, for this particular series. So instead of having just one person there dealing with all the technology, you've got Elise, uh, what is his name? Elise Guon, or Qon or something, Q-U-O-N, Quan, I guess, who is sort of the, the droid wrangler-type character. So he's the one that's working on the, the upgrades and everything to Inga. Inga is sort of his uh, sidekick, at least for this particular mission, though whether she winds up appearing later on as a, as a new version of the same character or not, um, I still have not seen. I've only read one issue so far of Hard Targets. And then you've also got this other character, uh, Royd Pugh, rhymes with Q, who gives him other gadgets, more like weaponry and technology as opposed to droids, like these para wings that can pop out and allow one to fly. Though as we as we see early on, they've got that James Bond kind of humor, because the first attempt at using the para wings for another character doesn't work so well. It's like, uh, uh, yeah, it's new para wings. Check these out. Go ahead and test them. And a dude jumps from this tall platform with the para wings, and it's just, wee splat. It's like, well, obviously they still need a little bit of work. Um, I think it played out well. They also, again, from the, the, the James Bond standpoint, which is really what screamed to me, uh, especially the first couple of issues, you get the the local gumshoe who is sort of finding himself in the midst of all this. Uh, Mersk, I believe, was his name. And then by the time we get to the second issue, it really feels James Bond because you've got them essentially in Star Wars versions of tuxedos. And, of course, that is when Jahan gets to meet Tits McGee and Tits McGee 2. Um, uh, Eddie Stark... And Dallas Stark, uh, the daughter and uh, second wife of Iako Stark from the Stark Hyperspace War stuff, who are both, I mean, it, they're drawn as if they are out of a James Bond film in the sense that they are basically busting out uh, physically. I mean, we talked about how there was the focus seemingly by accident of the artist in Night Errant Escape constantly on Kara Holt's chest. This time, it's not subtle. It's done purposefully uh, to get the attention, to get the feel of like the James Bond type of thing going on. And he gets right into the middle of you know flirting with the women, uh, hooking up with the women, being betrayed by different people next to the women, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, everything about this screams James Bond. And rather than it being something that feels very forced, the way that I think Death Troopers at first, for me, the first time around, felt somewhat forced, throwing it into the zombie realm... Um, as they move into this genre of storytelling for the comics, it could have felt heavy-handed, dull, and just forced. Instead, it works great. I mean, I really like this character. It's one of my favorite new characters of Star Wars in at least the last few years. And they've nailed the James Bond right down to the cover art that looks like a James Bond movie photo. I am amazingly impressed, though I'm not sure why I should be surprised when it's Ostrander working on it. And I'm not even sure who this artist is 
because it's Stephanie, but it's got these different accents. So I'm not sure if it's Stephanie, Stephane, Stefan, Stefan. Um, but the last name changes. Did you notice the last name of the artist changes between some of the issues, and yet the first name stays the same? It's Roe at one oh. point and Crate at another. It makes me wonder if this is someone who got married partway through the process or something. I don't know what the deal is. Or if this is just two people that happen to have the same first name with the same uh, different accent marks and whatnot. But everything about this... Um, except for one thing really got my attention in a very positive way. Uh, the first issue did get my attention in a negative way, but it eventually played itself out, which is what you had mentioned when introducing me at the beginning of the show. Um, they do bring in Han and Chewie here, but fortunately, unlike Death Troopers, it didn't feel like they were there just to be there. At least they have some story yeah. role, but still, it's another one of those, oh, look, it's Star Wars. To make it legitimate, we got to throw in a film character that really wasn't necessary. It could have been anybody else well, other than Han and Chewie, though it at least gives us some legitimacy and a feeling of connection to Jahan. Yeah, and that and that I think it immediately gave us more of a backstory to cross because now what you know of Han Solo's imperial past to a degree you can apply to cross. You know, and I was going to mention the same thing that it, at least they they made it kind of natural like they literally ran into each other and they happened to know each other. I mean, the way it played out, it it didn't feel forced. You're you're right. There was also a, a Sergeant uh, Mersick in this a uh Oh, why is it when I'm looking at a species, I suddenly am drawing a blank. Is that the Nicto, is Nico? Yeah, the Nicto. And uh, they got him dressed up kind of like Humphrey Bogart. He's got a trench coat on and a, he's got like one of those old classic detective type hats. And, you know, it, it definitely felt more real world, like 1940s, 1960s kind of thing, which again, get back to the styling of what's going on here. And I think, you know, in the front cover of the first one, they really nail it. Stormtroopers are the Empire's hammer. This man is its scalpel. And and that's kind of what you get as the story progresses. I mean, they, they definitely play up that aspect. You know, and, and again, I mentioned the art. You know, when Izzard is shown, like, all the Imperial high-ups and stuff got craggy, almost evil-looking faces. And, you know, Cross himself is very, you know, kind of almost like a, a model. You know, he's got that very much... Uh, Daniel Craig Bond, you know, or or Bronson Bond, you know, the very ladies' man kind of look to him. But you know, you, you're right on the aspect of the second issue. It did become, uh, uh, it was like it was like walking into a Hooters restaurant. Let's just say um, there's so much going on. But the the aspect of what's going on in the story arc for Inga's character, I found it was very intriguing. And and, and you're right in the aspect of of into the second issue of the second arc, and she has not shown up yet. So it definitely leads me to wonder what more is going to happen with the story because there was definitely some some issue with the Stark family and their, I don't know, almost kind of a lust for Inga in a sense with wanting to get their hands on her. Yeah, because of the technology that's involved in her and everything. I, I actually think that they played this out fairly realistically. One thing that they could have done with John Cross is just make him another of these Imperials who works for the Empire just because – it's the Empire. Either it's his job, or he just blindly follows whatever the Empire says. But at least we get a little bit of a reason for it. Uh, early on, there are some somewhat kind of hit-you-over-the-head moments of him uh, remembering back to a little sister. And at one point, there's even this woman who's sort of a battered woman, it looks like, uh, who he thinks for a moment is his sister. and tries to help out of that same instinct because of his sister. And we finally find by the end of this story arc that basically he was a child, as was his sister, 
on Coruscant when the Battle of Coruscant happened that we see in Revenge of the Sith. And by the time that he emerged from the underground, from all this damaged area, looking for his sister, uh, by the time he, I mean, he manages to find her, but she's been dead for at least a few hours before he gets there. So it, it's sort of that loss, but also that sense of, you know, if only I'd been faster. By the time he comes back from that, this young, impressionable young man, um, he is then hearing about how the Jedi just plotted to overthrow the Republic. They manipulated the Clone Wars. Um, they tried to kill the Chancellor and take over the government, which, which by itself, you know, coming at that particular time, it shapes his view that the Empire is just and that its enemies like the Jedi are truly the enemies of civilized society. I mean, he has an honest reason to believe in the Empire, even though it's built on Palpatine's lie. In his mind, that is the central truth, and that's what drives him to serve the way that he does. I mean, in a sense, he has that same sense that, you know, uh, James Bond has towards, you know, wanting to protect the United Kingdom. Here is John Cross with that same sense of honor and duty to protect the Empire. It's just that at this point, he doesn't realize that it is a misplaced sense of loyalty. And that is where my fear for this series comes in, that we will wind up seeing them sort of jump the shark at some point in the near future where he will stop being an agent of the Empire and start being someone who openly disagrees with the Empire and winds up being sort of the Jason Bourne on the run type character or winds up being sort of the rebel who's undercover still pretending to be an agent of the Empire type thing. I don't want to see him change yet. And I'm afraid that with the Disney thing happening and the possibility that this series and everything else for Dark Horse may wind up ending and jumping to Marvel for all we know, the fact that they have wrapped up so many other storylines recently prematurely, I'm afraid they're going to just jump the shark, do that within two or three storylines, and this series that is so promising is going to end before its time. I mean, because this is one of the best of the new Star Wars comic series in ages. It knocks pretty much any of the other ongoing comic series right now, I would say, out of the park. Um, and some of the ones who that just ended. Don't end this prematurely. Don't jump the gun on this stuff. Let this character breathe for a while. Yeah, I got to agree with that assessment on, on the breathing. You know, in issue two, uh, when he comes across... Dallas Stark, the uh, oh, the the chick that's a lot like Kit Fisto, that species. I'm, Kit I'm Fisto with big green boobs. Yes. Apparently. Well, she takes him back to their private room, pulls a classic Bond lady, strips down, gets into the hot tub bed because you know, of course, I love the fact that it, it. You think it's a hot tub, but when you look when she's first getting into it, it is a bed. Like, it's got pillows and stuff, and she's of course an underwater sea creature, so she's climbing into her bed, you know, and. She's like, you know, Joanne, darling, aren't you coming in? And, you know, he's just standing there and he's asking her more questions and stuff. He's still trying to negotiate and kind of find out what he needs to do. And she's sitting on the edge. She's like, aren't you going to come in? And he climbs into the, you know, he gets naked and climbs in with him. And he's like, better. And she goes, mm, we'll see. And then you discover that they're being watched. And you kind of see more action, kind of the water splashing around their two bodies. And then she goes, mm, better. And I'm just like, wow, they're really kind of pushing the adult content here, aren't they? I mean, they do it in a tasteful enough way that nothing is really shown, but boy, they are pushing the border. Yeah, it's got <laughs> it's, it's a Bond thing. It's got that level of shock. Uh, at least it shocked me. Uh, I remember being shocked about it the first time around, and now going back and looking at it after having seen one of the more recent episodes of Homeland, I'm saying this was this was tame. Uh, but th that's a whole other story. Um, but of course, that plays out forward into. 
the typical Bond thing. Now that they have bonded in that way, no pun intended, now they can share some more information. And just before he gets all that he needs, he's zapped. And by the time he wakes up, he's framed for murder and she's dead floating in the water. You know, it is the Bond thing. How many times have we seen spy novels or spy movies where a character hooks up with someone and then they wake up and dun-dun-dun, the character is dead next to them and now suspicion is on them. Now they have to run for it. I mean, that's what we get here. But in the Star Wars context, Star Wars weapons, the chase is not in cars. The chase is, you know, speeder bikes and things like that. It takes the familiar and twists it. I think part of why this thing uh, resonates with me so much is it's really what Lucas said he wanted to do with the with the classic trilogy, really. I mean, what was a classic trilogy? It was take the, the familiar idea of mythology and create one, sort of a fairy tale mythology, hero's journey, whatever, create one for the modern day. Classic concepts in sci-fi context. And that's what they've done here, except the classic thing that they're using isn't mythology, it's the classic spy novel type of archetypes. I think this does it even better than, you know, taking zombies and applying Star Wars to the zombies, or even tragedy, you know, Lucas referred to the idea that the prequels were the tragedy as opposed to the hero's journey in a classic sense. But even if you take a Greek tragedy type of archetype and try to slam the prequels into it, it doesn't exactly fit. This seems like it just fits like a glove into the idea of classic spy noir type stories. I'm surprised that the whole story was in color as opposed to some of it being in black and white, you know? <laughs> that would have been an interesting twist. Now, you know, it's the pacing of this is working. You know, you got the first one it kind of sets up, you get Han introduced, you know, so there's a connection there. The second one, you kind of get the main plot. Oh, wait, a twist. Now, now Cross is framed for murder. He's on the run. Third issue, Han and Chewie again come into play, but this time it, it makes more sense. They're getting ready to leave. And guess who comes knocking for help? Cross. And so they smuggle him into the smuggler's compartment. I mean, at least it's all playing into an aspect of it makes sense. You know, I, I originally I was I was like you. I was like, oh, boy, here's Han again. But I was I was OK with the way the first issue went. And by the time they got to this one, I was sold. I'm like, OK, put Han in here as much as you want. You know, a little a little minor spoiler on the next arc. They do something similar with Leia. And I was like, whoa, at first kind of take it back. But what they did worked so well. And we'll get to that again when we finally hit that arc. That it worked, and I liked it, and I, I felt that it added humor to not just cross the story, but to the overall mythos of Leia and Winter and their whole lookalike aspect. And we'll get to that when we get to that arc. But it was a really cool way of how they're going about this. And I, I think you're probably right in the aspect of this could just all be Ostrander at work. You know, I would love to see what this guy could do with a novel. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I think one of the things, though, about this... Uh, it does start to veer. By the time we get to the end of the arc, you've got your big action set piece a la Bond. I mean, you've got this this sort of quasi-tower thing on one of these gas giant type planets. And as it's uh, damaged and starting to teeter over, and of course they're in a gravity well, so there is a down in this case. Um, you know, the, the, everything's starting to fall apart and they have to basically fly the Millennium Falcon under where the characters are going to slide out of this thing so they have any chance of escaping. And yet still the chase isn't done. But they play very much into the Star Warsy sci-fi aspect of it as opposed to the spy novel thing with this idea that Iron Eclipse is this virus that if you put it into droids, it makes them all essentially answerable to Iako Stark. And that was the big twist. Hey, Iako Stark is still alive. But the way that they did that, that was where I at least somewhat was drawn out of the story because 
Iako Stark comes back here for various reasons, and he's this, like, quasi-droid multi like He looks like a droid spider that from time to time, the top opens up and shows his face. And, I don't know, that to me was extremely goofy and hokey. Uh, it's hard for me to take a villain seriously when he looks like that. Um, I would much rather have the character have come back, even if he was, you know, he was someone who was maybe uh, in some type of like Star Wars version of a wheelchair or something, controlling a spider type thing with his mind, as opposed to being inside uh, the droid body itself and having his face essentially be the one thing sticking out that looks like him. That that kind of kicked me out of the story right there at the end. I was able to buy back into it because of the cross character and the Etty Stark character, but yeah, I mean, the, the the way that they played the villain in this case really did not work for me. But I don't think it was because of the story itself. I think it was because of their choice of how they presented Stark having returned. Any other type of character design to that character, I probably would have bought into more. Yeah, I mean, I'd have gone with a, a Krang from Ninja Turtles with the head being down in the stomach even over the... the kind of spider-like look they got maybe this is just a, a way to get casual fandom to be okay with maul coming back as a spider droid i'm not sure well, he, but he's got he's got that great moment um where cross is is sort of going off on like so the plan is extortion sell the virus to the highest bidder why not the empire i can arrange it to which uh iako stark now crazy spider stark says it's not about money it's about power i intend to rule the galaxy and Stark tosses something at him. You're a freak, Stark. The sentence of the galaxy will never accept you. To which he replies, and it kind of brings up the, huh, you know, that's kind of true that I thought about when watching Revenge of the Sith uh, the last time I saw it, which is, why not? They've already accepted a freak like Palpatine. Seriously, have you looked at your emperor? Um, you know, I mean, the idea that he wants to take over and that somehow they'll accept him because he's a freak and Palpatine's somewhat of a freakish looking guy now thanks to the, the mace window electricity that was originally supposed to be dark side decay. I digress. Um, I don't know. I mean, it still left me thinking, eh, you're stretching credulity a little bit. If he had been anything other than the spider being, if he had been like the character from Ninja Turtles, as you mentioned there, or anything else, if he had been a disembodied brain... With a holographic body able to go around and talk, but it's really the brain in the jar that's doing it. I still think that would have wound up being something that made more sense than this did. I mean, it made him kind of a creepy character to fight against, especially, I guess, if you have a, a paranoia or a phobia about uh, spiders. But it still kind of left me going, really? This is what you did with your big bad character in this story that was already going so well? Yeah, you know, and and we also we mentioned the fact that uh, Inga didn't seem to come back in the next one. You know, I, I found that the way Cross goes about his decision there at the end of the fifth one of what to do with Inga and and the virus, the Iron Eclipse, and what it's going to be, it, it's it's one of those moments. Like you said, hopefully they drag this out. They don't reveal him realizing that the Empire is bad too quick because it definitely is one of those moments. Like if he'd have done the Imperial thing, he'd have gone back for, but. I, he did the right thing. You know, he, he goes, no one should have that. Not even the empire. It would be chaos. And so he leaves Inga on the, uh, the station as it's kind of collapsing, but it, it's one of those moments, you know, no body, no death. So <laughs> hmm, wonder how that's going to work out. Oh man, I would hope not. But I mean, he definitely plays this level of, 
again, the James Bond type, you know, he's willing to die. He's willing to sacrifice Inga if it comes down to it, even though he doesn't want to. Um, he's willing to let the virus itself be destroyed so as to not allow it to be unleashed perhaps against the Empire or even in the Empire's hands, depending on what he thinks of those who are above Icehard, for instance. But he gets this great moment of, unlike you, Stark, I'm willing to die if it means taking you with me and saving the Empire. Big explosion. Of course, I'm perfectly content that only you die. Which is one of those great, you know, <laughs> Bond type of, of moments. I'm waiting. I don't recall if there was a moment in here. I guess it must have been an issue, too, if there was one. Was there ever a point where he walked up to a bar and ordered some type of signature drink that we might wind up seeing coming back? Like the, you know, Mar vodka martini, shaken, not stirred kind of thing? That is a good question, actually. Uh, I want to say, yeah, that he did have a drink at one point, but I don't know if we saw him order it. Well, I know he has the drink whenever he's speaking to the ambassador uh, at the, yeah, at the dinner at the Stark's it. place, but we don't see him order it at that point. Yep. And nor nor did they do the uh, the late Bond where they told him, oh, hey, it's a martini, shaken, not stirred, you know? <laughs> that would have been funny, too. But yeah, it does not look like it, but that's not to say that they couldn't do it somewhere later, but yeah, it's definitely one of those things where they, I, I think they, they succeeded. Uh, you know, we got some great art we got a great story the villain might not have been the best use of design but everything else is working did, did you though get a feeling that the virus that the iron eclipse virus kind of had a, a ig88 and what he did with all the droids in this in the tales book feel to it yeah kind of it makes me wonder if there's any type of connection between the two or if this was just something where it just so happened that you know two different groups working from on the same type of project can wind up coming up with something that's very Similar. I mean, it's kind of the same thing that came up with, you know, the nuclear technology stuff. You know, granted, you know, it's Oppenheimer and it's Einstein making the, the first atomic bomb and whatnot. But at the same time, you know, how much did other countries need of information from other countries to develop their own nuclear weapons? I mean, that's the whole question about Iran right now. They've got a nuclear program, but is it one that's based on information they've got from elsewhere or is it information they're having to develop on their own and such you know so i don't know anytime i see one of these super weapons or anything like that i always just kind of sit back and say you know what it's just sort of the nature of the game having had a chance to talk to kevin j anderson about dark saber at one point uh, i really kind of became okay with this idea that you know what super weapons are kind of the thing you know they are the equivalent of people wanting weapons of mass destruction in today's world so why not have that be something that different groups are going to develop perhaps on their own even outside of the empire yeah and, and you're, you're absolutely right there. I mean, history has shown who has the biggest super weapon has the power. I, I like how at the end where uh, Ellie Stark is with him and she's like leaning over and she's like, oh, my. Or she goes, oh, you mean take my brother's advice and find a rich husband? Ellie, if that's what you want, I suspect you can get almost any man you want. But not you. You're not interested. And she leans in for a kiss. Goes, well, I didn't say that. It's like... So classic Bond, man. And and that's the thing I, I'm liking. And I think I think for me when I was reading Annihilation, I, I had to stop and go, which which spy is this one more like? Because there were so many times that, that Cross feels Cross himself feels like Bond, yet I think the setting is going to be more like the uh born identity. You know, I, I and I hope with you, I'm I'm right there with you. I hope that they do it drawn out that when it happens, it's not next arc <laughs> that it may be two or three, maybe even four arcs down the road that they continue to seed it. Cause you know, he's a very passionate character, 
So I'd like to see him kind of like hold on to hope that the Empire is the right thing for as long as he can and then come around with just a vengeance, you know, kind of do like a, a, a fell kind of thing maybe. Yeah, I'm just I, – I like the fact that they're going – that so far at this point, they've been able to pull in all the tropes of the Bond-type stuff without it necessarily being heavy-handed. Like it's there, but it feels like it's done in a respectful sort of way for the story as opposed to being something that's just thrown in there for the story. You know, like – or just thrown in there for the connection, like the Q-type characters, for instance. You know, that could very easily have been done in a very uh, tongue-in-cheek yet over-the-top sort of way, and yet – they just made it part of the framework. I mean, even the end. What do you get on the last page of the story? After they kiss, you know, I didn't say that, and we see the Millennium Falcon flying off into space, what do we get the little message? Jahan Cross will return in hard targets. Now, aside from borrowing a, a title or something very close to it, albeit singular, from um, a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, as I recall, um, that, that's exactly <laughs> the kind of thing that we saw at the end of a lot of the stories like the James Bond films. You know, James Bond will return, or James Bond will return in if they've already got another movie that's in the works. I mean, even that is present for it. I'm just glad that with Ellie, I think I called her Eddie earlier, but with Ellie Stark and these other characters, uh, there aren't a, a lot of, uh, of puns being used, because that's something we get with, you know, some of the, the James Bond stuff that really takes it into the cutesy area, at least prior to the Daniel Craig era. Uh, with, with, for instance, we had, you know, the on a top thing um, that was mentioned before, but you also have, uh, uh, what was it, what was the character's name? Dr. Christmas or something like that? Well, there was, uh, Octopussy was one, and yeah, well, I just so I, many I, bad ones. I can't take those seriously, especially having now seen the robot chicken take on his relationship with Dr. Crispitz, where it's where it's like, <laughs> I thought you said I was too old for Christmas and all this kind of stuff until eventually it's a, they're breaking up. He's like, are you canceling Christmas? And just all this really <laughs> stupid stuff. Um, yeah, for me, it's Austin Powers. He, he's Goldfinger. <laughs> but at least that one was meant to be, you know, be a, a humorous thing. It was done as sort of the quick little joke in the James Bond stuff, but it always comes off as kind of, of heavy-handed punnage. And usually I'm pretty good with the heavy-handed punnage stuff. Um, but this time, they didn't go that route. They've got a whole cast of characters whose name is Stark, some of whom become naked at some point in the story, and yet they didn't make the Stark naked pun, for instance. I think, you know, again, it shows that John Ostrander has a good grasp on how far you can go without it going too far. Kind of the same thing, really, with Legacy. How far can you go connecting it back to previous eras without going too far in it, for instance, like having Jagged Phil really be alive somewhere like in stasis or something like Crate was or something like that. That would be scary bad if they did something like that. I, you know, I, I think all the way around that this has been a fun ride. Um, I'm looking forward to where the character in the story is going in the second arc. It's definitely one of those aspects of when they do themes right, they should do it more often. You know, I mean, we, we've talked about how, you know, Death Trippers wasn't quite the best use of the theme, whereas Red Harvest was a little better. You know, we got in the Clone Wars, we had the Godzilla storyline, the uh, King Kong, the Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, there's so many different themes that have been used that when you see it done right like this, it gives you hope for more stories down the road. Um, you know, there, there's so many different versions of tales and things like that that I would love to see down the road in my Star Wars stuff. And the fact that they're leaning kind of heavily towards, you know, taking themes that we will recognize and making them show up in Star Wars. It, it, that's a cool thing. I, I think it gives a lot of potential for a lot of cool stories and some really cool effects. I mean, you know, like I said, the art on this was just really good art. And, and you know, yeah, there were some curvaceous women, but 
for you that like pinup tattoos, there's some curvaceous women in there that you might want to uh, tattoo on yourself. I'm not sure. I have never tattooed myself, but there's a lot of cool things going on with this arc, and I, I'm glad that I took the time with it and I, I, I went ahead and read it, and uh, I'm looking forward to where the next one's going. Uh, there's there's a lot of cool stuff with this character, and I, I'm looking forward to the most to how this could play in overall with like Izzard and stuff. I mean, we we get most of the stuff we know about him is from story arcs that deal with his daughter, and so this is kind of like one where he's able to be seen in his element. And I like those little tie-ins because it gives you a, a sense of where the Empire is and is growing from what I knew from the old era of EU stuff to this new one that's kind of tying in the prequels more and more every day and and connecting the old and the prequel trilogies. And that's what I like the most about this. It really did a good job of connecting old and the new and creating something brand new out of all of that. Yeah, it's in an era three years before the classic trilogy. You have to be very careful, you know, with how you use certain characters in that era. But for a story that had to use Han and Chewie, at least they're doing it in a way that makes sense. As long as chronologically you can make it fit in with, you know, the Han Solo trilogy, Han Solo Adventures, and all that. It's kind of the same thing with the use that we'll wind up seeing in the next story arc with Leia, like you mentioned, as long as it's used well, that's, you know, all well and good. But I wouldn't want to see something like what we saw in Invasion when we already know what's going on with, you know, the Solo children, and yet they wind up on a mission with some of the characters in Invasion because that just didn't seem like it fit right with everything else. I wouldn't want to necessarily see, you know... Uh, farm boy Luke from Tatooine disappear for a while on a mission with Jahan Cross that he's not allowed to tell anyone about. That's why we haven't <laughs> heard about it any any before or something like that. Uh, as long as they keep those little things to small bits and pieces, I think that works well. And they're already sort of doing it with the second arc. I've only got the first issue of it right now because mine take a while to get to me through the mail. But Iceheart, you know, Isan Iceheart has appeared. You mentioned about Leia and Winter having appeared. It's all these little brief little little touches where it's not over overly done. It's just that little bit of flavoring. And when you do it like that, or you do it in a way that matters to the story, that works out great. Um, but when you do it in such a way that it kind of takes away from the story, like with Death Troopers, that's when it just grates on the fabric of my Star Wars love and soul. Well, just to touch on, on the first issue of the second arc, the one thing that jumps out of the weird sensations for me was Count Dooku. Uh, we we get a new Count Dooku of Sereno and his son, and they actually have first names. And the only reason why it kind of threw me back was that it, it didn't really explain much of Count Dooku that we know or what his name is. I mean, uh, Darth Plagueis kind of avoided mentioning his name as well. It, that, to me, kind of felt very much Tor-like, like, oh boy, are we really going to continue to not give him a name? Or are we really going there? Maybe it's Dooku Dooku. <laughs> well, it's like it's like it's like Palpatine, right? For a long time, people thought that Palpatine's first name would have been Cause C O S because in the early drafts of Star Wars, his name was what well, was C O S space D A S H I T as his last name. Dash it, I guess. But if you run it all together, he's Cause the, you know. I wonder if there's something else <laughs> to it. Like maybe Dooku's first name is uh, I need to take a or something. I need to. I'm sorry, excuse me. I need to take a Dooku. Excuse me. Um, I always uh, thought that was a weird name, and now for it to be a title and make us wonder if this character had some name otherwise uh, kind of makes me shake my head. But again, we saw that with Palpatine. Palpatine just chose to go with his family name back in the Darth Plagueis novel because of what it represented. So, you know, maybe we won't get another name for, for classic Dooku, but it definitely screams, wait, what? 
when they brought this up. I like the idea that it's a that if there is a count of Sereno, of course there has to be another one to follow the one we know of as Dooku, but to have Dooku not be his name, but instead be the title's name is it's odd. It's it's a weird, weird well, kind of choice. What was Dooku the title's name? Because I was under the impression that he, it was the family name, but that Dooku, the one in, in the comic, had left and went to Coruscant because he was kind of isolating himself from the family because of what the Count was doing with the Separatists. And thus, because he was, in a sense, untainted in the Republic eye, they let him take the title and keep it thus in the family. At least that's how I had interpreted it. But it, it did raise a lot of those questions. It's been a while since I actually read Hard Targets. I'm kind of waiting for the next one to come, and I'm going to reread the first one as I read the second one, because it seems like it's been... Uh, it feels like a longer gap between this and the last, but that may just be because we don't have as many Star Wars series going right now, especially now that stuff like Death Sentence and whatnot are also over with. And, and I think that's like one of the, the, the issues when you get comics the way we do, you know, how, how they don't always read well waiting one week to two weeks to a month between them. But with, you know, Iron Eclipse, each one felt like it was its own little mini story and they all tied together into the overall whole. And I think that to me is a winning scenario. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they do the same thing with hard targets. I mean, at least it's so far it's felt that way. And, and I think that that, at least if, if they continue to do that, or if that's just an Ostrander plan or a format, they need to stick with it because it's working. Now we just need whatever comes next, which kind of makes you wonder if at some point, since they based Indiana Jones off of James Bond to a degree, is it possible we'll see a Star Wars Indiana Jones-style uh, comic book series starting out, or novel series starting out out there? Certainly the last time we saw intrepid archaeologists, as I recall, it was Ruins of Dantooine, and that did not go over so well. Well, it wasn't Scourge, wasn't that kind of, uh, Scourge was kind of like that, right? Like, I, I, that's one of the few I haven't finished yet. Well, I mean, he's a, he's a, a librarian type, historian type of guy, but it wasn't like one of those, you know, we're searching for this lost artifact type of thing, you know, kind of, I could see that fitting in perfectly with Star Wars, you know, they're sending someone after a lost Sith artifact or Jedi artifact that might help them turn the tide in a war, maybe even, Ooh, hey, do something. Jedi like Shadow. That. Well, what do they have going on with the end of Fate of the Jedi now? Right? They're after a mystical artifact that they Ooh. need to defeat some massive entity out there. Maybe just maybe we can see sort of a an Indiana Jones style chase to find the uh, that particular weapon. I'll name it for those who haven't finished reading Apocalypse. That so actually point. could work. I mean, I, I was I was immediately thinking of uh, Dre in the Kotor area and how he had the the Jedi Shadow Council and whatever the heck they were going by, uh, and and how they were doing their own things, seeking out the Sith artifacts and stuff. But actually, that would be a very good placement for a story like that. Show me the idol. You show me the idol. I show you the lightsaber. <laughs> he could have some little Solston sidekick. Come on, shorty. <laughs> there you go. No time for love, Doctor Skywalker or whatever. They could call him Dr. Junes. <laughs> Dr. Junes. There you go. J-O-O-N-S. There you go. That'd be perfectly Star Wars. And then it would open the possibility that he might be a, a, a clone because he's got a double letter in there. Nice. Nice. Well, I think that about wraps up this episode. And remember, you can listen to our show airing on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as streaming on the Star Wars Report website. 
www.starwarsreport.com. Our episodes are also available right on our Facebook page, at SWBeyondFilms, or you can just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. No matter how you get there, though, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways that you can interact with us. We're always asking questions, throwing photos up, uh, even doing some old stuff. I mean, we're doing all sorts of stuff on our Facebook page. And each month, we're also going to release a feedback episode when there are enough emails that you have sent us to justify it. Thus far, we haven't had enough. So if you have something you want to say about an episode, fire it off. You can email us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. So once again, this has been Whistler and Mark, along with Nathan, the man, the myth, the compulsive Star Wars collector, saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. Because Jahan Cross will kill you. <laughs> or that Inga is alive somewhere inside the middle of that ship. You know, you gotta wonder if, as he was looking at those white and those green boobs, was he looking at the metallic boobs on Inga? I'm just saying. Sex lies in the droids that'll kill ya. Jahan Cross is a dirty, dirty man. 